Well, we have heard and sung the familiar story again tonight, the one with angels and shepherds and Mary and Joseph and no room in the inn and the manger. Those parts of the story are the parts of the story that are really familiar to us. They are the parts of the story that are pictured in greeting cards and in Sunday school pageants. And these are the parts of the story that are arranged in nativity sets all over our great city maybe even in your own home tonight. So it could be a little strange, I think, to remember that there are parts of the story the Gospel writer Luke tells us that aren't ever in those things. I've never seen a Christmas card with Quirinius, the governor of Syria, on it. Uh, I have never seen a nativity set that's ever featured Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor at the time of Jesus' birth. It would be odd, wouldn't it, to see him there, the emperor, nestled between the lowing cattle and the woolly sheep. But the truth is, the first two sentences of the story of Jesus' birth do not begin with Jesus, but with those two guys, Quirinius and Augustus, men who represented Roman power and oppression. Augustus had come to power the old-fashioned way by ruthlessly cutting out all of his rivals by any means necessary. If only we had some kind of analogy in our own country of warring political factions trying to get ascendancy and power over one another. But I guess we'll just have to imagine that we live in a world like that. The point that the gospel writer is not so subtly making is that Augustus thought that he was shoring up his own power and his tax base when he made that decree that the whole world should be taxed. So he speaks and the world snaps into action. But we know better, don't we? (laughs) It might look like the whole world is moving for Augustus, but in the end his decree is just this elaborate, beautiful, almost comic setup He is a pawn, really, in God's plan, because two scared teenagers had to get to Bethlehem to have a baby. (laughs) I mean, think about it. There is no way that Joseph would have taken Mary on such a hard 75-mile journey in the waning days of her pregnancy without a really compelling reason to do it. So God speaks, and then Caesar acts. And off they go on a very unlikely journey. (laughs) Augustus said we had to do it, Mary. Don't blame me. (laughs) And I think it is good to be reminded that that is the world that people like us live in. A beautifully open world where there is always more going on than what we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands and hear with our ears in the present moment. I know that culturally we like to pretend that, sometimes at least, that this world is all that you see, that what you see is what you get and that's it, that this world is closed. But even though we pretend that, we know in our bones that that is not really true. So tonight I'm just saying, have enough hope to follow through on that hunch. You and I live in a world where God acts and moves and he does it for our good. I don't know, of course, what part of the story of your life you find yourself in tonight. Maybe it is hard. 
Maybe you are on a difficult journey of your own, like Mary and Joseph were, one you would have never chosen if you had been given the chance. Maybe there's a relationship that is strained or slipping away. Maybe there is sickness on your journey for you or for someone you love. I don't know what it is, but I do know that Christmas Eve is a good night to remember that your story is a part of the larger story of God and his world. And you are not alone. You live in his world. And he acts in it all the time for our good, even if we cannot see it clearly in the present. So Mary and Joseph arrive in Bethlehem and none too soon. (laughs) The time came for her to give birth, Luke tells us, but there is no place for them in the inn. And of course, at this point in the story, you can hardly be surprised that that's the case. Of course, there's no room. It's not like the last nine months have been a bed of roses for them. Can you imagine anyone really believing Mary's unlikely story of her pregnancy? I mean, Joseph didn't even believe it. It was an angel who had to convince him. And think about how Joseph looked to everyone in their little village when he stayed with Mary. Like a fool. Or worse. It's been nine months of whispers behind their backs. Nine months of sideways looks on the street. Nine months of former friends walking in big circles around them. And then a hard trip at the worst possible time for a trip. So it is just one more indignity and a long line of indignities when they find out that there is no room for them in the inn. And Mary ends up delivering her firstborn beside the animals using a manger, a feed box for a bed. So my point in bringing all of this up is not really to talk about the character of Mary and Joseph, although it is remarkable. The dignity and the faith with which these two walk into this part of their story. No, my point is simply to say that if the identity of this child is as the angels will say that it is, if this child really is the Savior, Christ, the Lord, then he could have arrived in any way he wanted, to any family he wanted. (laughs) I suppose that goes without saying, right? He could have certainly been born in the luxury to which someone, for instance, like Augustus had become accustomed to in a palace with attendants, with the best care. He could have been placed in a bed appropriate for a baby. But church, that is not how Jesus enters into this world. His family is the subject of shameful rumors. He enters the world in humility, attended by indignities, caught in the rough hands of a scared carpenter, witnessed by the barnyard animals, surrounded by their smell, laid in the place where they eat. (laughs) As the poet Lucy Shaw said, a long leap, an incandescent fall, from magnificent to naked, frail, small, through space, between stars, into our chill night air, shrunk in infant grace to our damp, 
cramped, earthy place among all of the shivering sheep. (laughs) That's what he chose. That's what God chose to become one of us for us. And I'll tell you what, if that is true, if that is true, then everyone in here tonight will have to agree there cannot possibly be a place to which he will not go to save people like us, like you and me. It's possible, I think, tonight that maybe there are some here tonight who think that they cannot be forgiven or maybe that we are not worthy of forgiveness. I imagine maybe there are some here on this Christmas Eve who think the situation that you're in is too messed up, too mangled to be redeemed, that the hooks of the addiction are in too deep. Maybe you feel like you're not significant enough to warrant God's attention. Well, the Jesus who slept his first night in the feed box has something to say to you and me. The hooks are never, ever in too deep. The situation is never too messed up. No shame is too great. No one is past redemption. Jesus will go anywhere to forgive and to heal and to redeem people like you and me. He will go even to a cross, especially to his cross. So I say it again. Have hope enough to follow through on that hunch tonight. Follow Jesus in faith for the first time or for the thousandth time. And then Luke's story shifts out to the hillside where a bunch of shepherds are working the night shift. My wife works the night shift now. She's a nurse. So my appreciation for it, or maybe um, better said my sympathy for it, has deepened. That is the quiet watch the pull-up-a-chair-while-everyone-else-is-sleeping watch. The overlooked watch. The forgotten one. And so they're just out there minding their own business, doing the work, and then the next thing you know, they are pinned back under the heavy, luminous, beautiful weight of God's own presence. (laughs) As St. Chrysostom put it, Bethlehem this day resembles heaven. And so there they are, slack-jawed and trembling, and they get the word. I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. And church, I'm telling you, if people like us hear that story 101 times, I hope that we get overtaken by this simple fact a hundred and one times. And it's this, that the news of Jesus' birth was first announced to everyday, normal people like you and me. I mean, there could have been a month-long media blitz. Jesus' birth could have been announced first in the halls of Herod or Quirinius or even old Augustus far off in Rome, but it was not announced there. It was announced to a handful of scruffy shepherds working on a cold hillside with a bunch of animals in the middle of the night. 
I think Mary would have guessed that it would be that way if you could have asked her. She's the one who said, the mighty one has done great things for me. A scared young girl from a no-name country in the north. She had done nothing to commend herself. It is God who came to her unbidden in his grace. And so she knew it would always be that way. He, he gives the hungry good things. He exalts those who are of humble estate. So when the shepherds stumble their way into Mary's unlikely delivery room for a visit, I bet she didn't bat an eye. (laughs) Of course, he told the shepherds first. And that's how he comes to people like us again tonight. In wild pursuit of normal, everyday people. In the very particular situations we find ourselves in, dealing with all of the joyous and all of the hard stuff that we have to deal with, knowing in our bones that there is more to this life than what we can see in front of us right now. Jesus comes to us again tonight by his grace, and he invites us to follow him in faith and find forgiveness and healing and meaning and strength. That's what the shepherds left, and they told everyone who would listen to them, absolutely anyone who would lend an ear, they told them. And the people wondered at what had been told them. Amen.